Here we are, week four, and you can see who's surviving the cut. We have already thinned in our ranks a little bit. I got to talk to the uh, massa sergeant who's making out the workout schedule and see if he can give you a memory verse more than six words long. <laughs> Good night. What is this? <laughs> Preschool? Uh, I think, I, seriously, I think the kids are memorizing longer verses than us right now. So uh, why don't you double dip leaders? My, my team uh, grabbed a couple extra this week, or at least one extra. I gave them only one. Uh, that might be good for you to grab another one until we can string a whole sentence together for you. But, uh, but we are glad you're here, man. Thank you for persevering. I'm sure some other guys will come in. And uh, let me pray for us. We'll see if we can redeem our time right here. Lord, thank you for these men that are here. And we know that there are others who want to be here who uh, cannot... Uh, or something has come up in their morning already to uh, distract them from that which they ultimately committed themselves to. Help us to be a community of grace that loves and encourages each other, but to always be uh, a place where we act like men, where we are on the alert, we stand firm in the faith, and we are strong. Help everything that we do, Father, be done in love, uh, so that it can be rightly said that we are your disciples, because you've told us that it's by our love for one another that men will know that you're uh, our master and that we're your disciples. Not by the fact that we get up early, we memorize verses, but by the fact that we love one another. And that is uh, not easy for us to do. So Lord, this morning we come together and we do not want to uh, despise you and be devoted to something other than you. We don't want to hate you and love something else. Uh, we want to be fully focused on you. We want to humble ourselves before you, knowing that, as it says in Peter, that you will exalt us in due time. And we want to be individuals that, having received grace from you, eagerly seek and save that which is lost, just as you did when you came. Thank you for these men. Just encourage our hearts right now. Amen. Well, come on in here, guys. We are uh, working our way through Luke 19 and 20. What we try and do at this time is just give you a little bit that we can uh, all focus on together. What I want to do is walk you just through a couple of the big ideas in Luke 19 and 20. Uh, just grabbing a few things and showing you how you can take stuff and apply it to your own life. Zacchaeus is where it obviously starts this week. Uh, Zacchaeus was uh, the, one of the, the, the leading, I can put it this way, he had the niche business you want to have in Jericho. In that, in that county right there in Judea, he was the chief tax collector. And that means you had the right basically to set the taxes where you wanted. You know what you had to give the the the. Uh, presiding Roman influence over you. And so you could basically, though, set the rate at whatever you wanted and have the Roman authority behind you in order to exploit your own people, and you could pretty much pad your pockets. And so Zacchaeus had done that. He was doing everything a man in his position would do to take care of himself and his family to set himself up. He loved money and not God. And he was hated for it. And he wasn't really hated for it because he loved money. He was hated for it because, frankly, he was, he was taking money from men that loved money. Just like Jesus in 19 and 20 was hated because he was taking position from men that loved position. But what I want to show you in Zacchaeus is, uh, is just a truth that I've seen play out again and again in my life. That here's a guy that's got it all in Jericho. And yet there was something about Christ that continued to make him thirsty. That continually made him know that whatever it was that he was living for must not be the right thing. Because he didn't have what Christ had. And so in the midst of a bunch of people that would not let him through... Uh, because Zacchaeus was not their favorite, he was determined to get a glimpse of Christ. And uh, we know that he climbed that little tree and he looked at Christ, and Christ was always looking for men like Zacchaeus that were hungering and thirsting for something other than what they had. And he said, hey, Zacchaeus, let's you and I dine together. 
And you would never think that Zacchaeus would be a guy that in that little crowd would have sought out Jesus. We always get it when the paralytic or the leper does. We always get it when the prostitute wants to get out of her life. But what we forget too often in this community that we live is that there are lots of guys that have it all that know that they don't have anything. And the question is, do they see in us the kind of life that would make them want to get up early and come see what it is that we know, that when we tell them, hey, will you come with me and um, understand a little bit more about this Jesus, that they would want to uh, even interrupt their normal weekend schedule because they see in you a life that has changed, that they would want to come and see, that they would want to climb up and look in and see who this Jesus is. I, I got an email this week um, this was from a young lady, but it reminded me of uh, a little verse, and it reminded me of Zacchaeus. It reminds me of Proverbs 14, 13, and 14. L- look what it says in these couple of verses. It says that even in laughter the heart may ache, and joy may end in grief. The faithless will be, rewar- will be fully repaid for their ways, and the good men rewarded for his. Zacchaeus is that guy that, that was rewarded for his ways. I mean, he had... Um, he had earned the wages of deceitful labor. He, uh, he, though, was the guy that was living in great comfort. And people probably thought, I mean, you know, Zacchaeus is laughing long over food and wine. But even in laughter, it says, the heart may be in pain. Proverbs 18, 10, and 11 says, The name of the Lord, though, is a strong tower, that the righteous run into it and are safe. Verse 11, as you can see, says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall, okay? Uh, or or uh, I think the NAS says that uh, a rich man's wealth is a high wall in his imagination, okay? And, and in other words, I'll never need anything if I surround myself with riches and comfort. And yet inside that wall is a prison because there's no life there, because there's no true king, and there's no true peace when the king of peace is not there. And there's a lot of guys like Zacchaeus, there's a lot of people in your life that are just looking for a reason to scale their wall, scale their sycamore tree, and look out and go, where is there really a strong tower? Where is there real peace? And if you uh, are like Christ and you love that which is lost, you'll be an individual that talks about real joy and that shares real joy with others. And so I want to read you this little email because uh, this gal uh, had it all, which she said, I really had nothing. And so this is what she says. She says, uh, Todd, I want to share with you how um, your staff and, and other strangers here at Watermark have changed my view on Christ. Uh, it's changed my relationship and the way I've struggled with uh, my lack of faith. I grew up in a religion that was full of rituals, rules, and monetary leaders. Although I attended different classes at church every week, I have to admit that I felt like an outcast. I didn't understand the sermons. I was bored most of the time when attending services. It frustrated me that I could not have a relationship with the Lord. I could not envision what it was to know Him. I could not feel what I thought everyone else was feeling when it came to Him. Many times growing up, I felt like a failure and was extremely hard on myself when I veered from the Lord's path instead of learning from my mistakes. This sent me to what I call a religious depression. Now watch this. In college, I feel that longing or void the way most of us do in college with drinking and partying too much and spending much of my time having what I thought was the time of my life. I was the captain of, and she names the Big 12 school, I was the captain of the cheerleading squad at this school, and uh, was seen to many as a strong leader in more walks of life. Uh, she says, although there were many wonderful memories from, and amazing friends I made during that time, I'll never forget there were major points of darkness that I really uh, loathed and that let me down so far that I thought I'd never get back up. 
And she goes on to say, on the outside, I looked the part. I walked the walk. I showed no troubles. I seemed happy, vivacious, held together. I was the head cheerleader. She said, but inside, I was anything but that. And into that life, okay, so she came here one day, and, uh, which was not long ago after she got out of that school, and she sat here, and as we started to talk about life, you know, her Zacchaeus moment wasn't climbing a tree. She said, I cried uncontrollably in the middle of a church service. I love this right here. Let me just go back and read this, because I want to remind you men what's sitting around you week after week. She says, uh, I attended Watermark not long ago. You were preaching, and I honestly felt like for the first time I was on the path of getting out of the deep, uh, dark-filled woods that I had been in for so long. I remember being so overwhelmed with emotions that I started sobbing in the middle of the service. I felt embarrassed because I was sitting there alone in despair, hoping that people around me wouldn't just freak out. I had cried until the end of the service. I cried because although I was alone, I didn't feel alone anymore. I didn't, uh, she said, the sermon that day spoke to me. I felt like it was meant for me to hear. When it was over, to my surprise, I had the people sitting next to me, and some people from about eight rows back engulfed me with hugs, and they told me that even though they didn't know me, they knew it was hurting, and that they wanted me to know that I had a home here and a God who loves me. And an email goes forward from there, and that's not right now her story of loneliness and pain, but one of integration and coming to Christ. What I want to let you guys know is there are still Zacchaeuses all around. Sometimes there's Zacchaeus, all right? But they are in the middle of this high wall in their imagination of everything the world says they should have. But inside, even though you see joy and you see flash and you see everything going well, okay, there is no joy. And they want to know if there's somebody who knows where this king is. Where's the crowd gathering that knows this Messiah that has come? That's who we are. And what Jesus says is, even as the Father sent me, so I send you. For the Son of Man, we know, did not come, uh, but he, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And so also should we. I think about Zacchaeus as we go on from him real quickly. And um, I think about what he did. And remember how Zacchaeus responded? And one of the things I would love for you guys to share in your group today and one of the things I want to maybe challenge you to do is just answer this question. What Zacchaeus did was seem radical. If you go back and look at the Old Testament requirement for a man that had wronged a brother, Zacchaeus uh, far exceeded that in the way that he sought to make amends. His response was radical. And what Jesus said when he saw what Zacchaeus had done, he said, I tell you, salvation has come to this man's household today. Because Zacchaeus didn't just make some verbal profession of faith. His faith was evidenced in works. And one of the things that you want to ask yourself is, hey, has there ever been a time if, because uh, Zacchaeus, never, Zacchaeus never makes a profession of faith. He just gets after being a man whose faith is professed with his life. And if you can never tell somebody, and I believe in Jesus, would somebody come up and say to you, I tell you that salvation has come to your household today. I can see it by the way that you are living, that your faith is evidence, that you are bearing the fruit of repentance in your life. And so here's my question. What is the most radical thing that you have ever done because of your awareness of Christ's kindness for you? Zacchaeus immediately got radical. But what's the most radical thing that you have ever done because of your awareness 
of Christ's goodness to you. I think about this section. This section is filled from 19 to 20 with one conflict after another. And one of the things that I want to encourage you with is if you're in conflict, is that Christ saw conflict as an opportunity to teach. I've mentioned this to you before, and it's worth writing down. You ready? Something in your notes right here. Conflict is an opportunity for three things. Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Why? For us, it's because we are individuals that um, are going to humble ourselves. Because we know, uh, because we've memorized it, we know that he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. And so we're going to humble ourselves in conflict. We're going to get the log out of our own eye. We're going to show folks that we're aware of our own sin nature, that sometimes that manifests itself into our own sinful practices. We're going to talk about the fact that God wants us to uh, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And most people aren't. Most folks are so conflict avoidant. The second you start humbling yourself before them, they go, no, no, that's, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. And you have to lean through. You have to show them, no, God's changed my heart. We're not going to have a superficial relationship. We're not going to be peace fakers who act like we're okay with each other when we're not. And we're not going to be peace breakers who, when you hurt me, I hurt you more. So we don't get into worse, uh, so you don't do that to me again. We're going to be peacemakers. Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Secondly, conflict is an opportunity to serve others. Because you're going to go to them, you're going to love them, and you're going to model for them how a godly man acts in the midst of conflict. And then lastly, conflict is an opportunity to grow ourselves. Why? Because every time we humble ourselves, every time we pay attention to how God says we should work through something with gentleness, humility, right, patience, forbearance, showing uh, love to one another, it's going to grow our hearts. Now look, of those three things, Christ couldn't grow. But he could glorify God, he could serve others, and he could reveal who he himself was. And that is what Christ did in every single one of these situations. The way that he took these opportunities for conflict every time, he said, let me reveal to you who I am. And that his enemies were consistently confounded around him. Now what I love about this is when you get enemies, they're going to take a shot at you. We know politically folks take enemies at you by starting to try and expose something about you, like you were a witch at one point in your life, if you've been following one of the races back east, or uh, some other uh, situation that is um, either evidence in your life or something that's been said of you. One of my favorite little um, uh, scripture is, is you know, Proverbs 28.1, which says, The righteous are bold as a lion. But the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. When Christ was confronted by, if you will, not just the religious elite of the day, but the, the powerfully entrenched uh, you know, media of the day, the, the people who were holding the microphone in the day, he said, bring it on. You know, send your 60 minutes to me. Send your little investigative reporter to me. And let's talk. Let's chat. Because Christ knew that they weren't going to find anything in him. Uh, Proverbs 10.9. This is why Christ was glad with their questions. Says that the, the, the man of integrity walks securely, but, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. And so Jesus walked securely. He was never concerned of what they were going to find out. Look at John chapter 8, verses 44 through 46. It says that um, Christ was confronting these individuals at one point. He said, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Now that doesn't usually win you a lot of friends and influence people. But he felt like it was time to speak that. Now watch this. Yet because I tell the truth, 
you don't believe me because the truth is contrary to your nature. You don't have eyes that are spiritually appraised. And then look what he says in verse 46, because they spend the rest of his ministry from that point forward, and you are certainly at the epicenter of it in Luke 19 and 20. They spend the rest of their interaction with Christ trying to do what verse 46 challenged them to do. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling truth, why don't you believe me? In other words, Christ said, hey, examine my life. Where is it inconsistent? Where does it not stand up to the light? Where am I living contrary to the way God wants a man to live? And by the way, this is why the Pharisees kept trying to find him and isolate him alone and get false witnesses to come against him, against him because the people loved him and they could not find anything wrong with him. Okay, now look, we're never going to live up to that standard. But it's a good one to aspire to, guys. Is when folks, the scripture says, slander your good behavior in Christ Jesus. It says you should live in such a way, all right, that your good behavior would in effect put them to shame. So they're going to call you a fool for believing what you believe in and living radically if we can work up the faith to respond radically to Christ the way that we do. But when they look at your good behavior, okay, they ought to go, you know what, at the end of the day I can't really argue with the man's life, the man's love, the man's marriage, the man's priorities, the man's kindness. I just think he's crazy. When Jesus was confronted with this conflict, he said, look, I'm, I'm not going to run from conflict. I'm going to see it as an opportunity for me in this conflict to glorify God, to serve you, and in Christ's case, reveal himself, and in our case, grow ourselves." Last little observation from this text. One of the things you see is this, the craziness of Christ walking into Jerusalem, and you see the way that people worship him and celebrate him and uh, make him out to be you know, the best thing since uh, sliced bread, as the euphemism goes. But it's not long after that that, again, that same crowd cries, crucify him, crucify him. And one of the things I want to let you know is that uh, you know, being a leader, if you are a leader because you love the praises of people, you will not lead very long. Great leaders don't feel the people, fear the people. This is where Saul ultimately failed Israel. It says that Saul, talking about one of the mistakes that he made, feared the people, and so he made decisions that were contrary to the exhortation he had been given by the prophet Samuel. But David was a man after God's own heart. What's God's heart like? God's heart wants to be intimate with others, but it doesn't fear that people are going to praise him if he holds to his guns. He'll speak the truth in love. At times, that truth is going to drive folks away. But Christ says, that doesn't make me back away from truth because I love you. You can do what you want to do with me, but I'm going to do what I have to do with truth, which is embrace it. If you're going to be a great leader, you're going to have cycles where the world thinks that you did the greatest thing, and where right after that, they're going to come at you. I've got two meetings today. One of them is follow up with a guy who's not unlike that little gal that sent me an email just talking about how their life has been changed underneath the you know part of what I'm involved in leading. And another one is somebody just can't stand me because of uh, the way they've con- been confronted with folks here uh, underneath that which I've been leading. You know what? All I get to do to both of them is try and glorify God, serve them, grow myself, and point them to Christ. It's the same thing. Here's a verse I go to, and this is the last thing I show you. Again and again in my leadership. Uh, in First Peter chapter 2, 
uh, it, it just talks about in verses 19 down through 24. It says, it's commendable if a man bears up under pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. In other words, there are times you're going to suffer rightly because you've lived well and others aren't going to love you, and that's commendable. He says, but look, when you screw up and you suffer well underneath it, don't look for a pat in the back. It's just what you should do. And that's what I'm saying. Sometimes we just got to humble ourselves and do the right thing when we screw up and repent. And one of our greatest evangelistic tools is, hey, what you just saw, not only is it not consistent with what you think is right, it's not consistent with what my God says is right, what I want to be about. And I want to tell you, that was not my best. And it certainly wasn't me yielding to Jesus. And I love him. And I love you. And every time I follow Christ, it goes well with you. And when I don't, you get the kind of mess that I just got to send. Will you forgive me? I've already asked God for forgiveness. I'm thankful for Christ who forgives me. But I need to ask your forgiveness. And then also then take the consequences. Make amends where possible. He says when you do that, hey, that's exactly what you should do. But he says in verse 21, getting back to the main point, to this you were called, meaning to suffer, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. One of the places that it says specifically in Scripture that Christ did this as an example, there's two of them, by the way. One of them is in John 13 where he washed their feet. He said, this I did as an example for you. So one of them is you take the role of a servant. You humble yourself before men. You don't come to be served, but to serve. And the second time he says in Scripture, specifically that this was done as an example, is that you would suffer. And so you put those two together. The two things that Christ has called us to be, if we're going to want to be like him, is a suffering servant. Something if you do, the world's going to say, that's crazy. And Christ would say, I tell you, salvation has come to this man's household today. But watch that. He says, um, Christ, in verse 22, this was his life. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It says, when he suffered, he did not utter threats. Okay? Uh, and when he reviled, he reviled not in return. That's the way I've memorized it. That's the NAS. We have the NIV up here. Okay, but instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. You see, this was the source of Christ's peace. He said, at the end of the day, it's not the Pharisees, it's not going to be Herod, it's not going to be Pilate, it's not going to be the masses that determine who I am. My goal, and Christ knew where he was headed, he was headed to a cross, but my goal is not to head into tomorrow. My goal is to be faithful today. My goal is not to preserve my position at work. My goal is to be faithful today. My goal is not to maintain popularity in the community. My goal is to be faithful today. And as a result of that, you might get reviled, and folks may utter threats against you. But you've got to figure out who it is that you serve. Because man can't serve two masters. Do you serve your popularity, your position, your prestige, your advancement? Or do you humble yourself before God? If you want to seek and serve the lost... You've got to live as if you found something. And Jesus says, I have entrusted myself to the one who judges rightly. It's the only opinion that matters. And so I will not let my conflict with you conform me into the image of this world, but I will be the hope of this world by bringing the image of heaven to you. That's our charge and our privilege today, man. I pray your small group time will spur you on toward that end and you will do something more radical for him as a result. All right, man. Go get him. Have a great day. We'll see you.